So I invite you this morning to turn your Bibles to Psalm 87. Psalm 87. I'd like for us to read the, uh, the, all seven verses of this psalm. <clears throat> if you're there in Psalm 87, beginning in verse 1, would you read it with me? His foundation is in the holy mountains. The Lord loves the gates of Zion. <clears throat> Excuse me, more than all the dwellings of Jacob. Glorious things are spoken of you, O city of God. Salah. I will make mention of Rahab and Babylon to those who know me. Behold, O Philistia and Tyre with Ethiopia, this one was born there. And of Zion it will be said, this one and that one were born in her. And the Most High himself shall establish her. The Lord will record when he registers the peoples. This one was born there. Salah. Both the singers and the players on instruments say, All my springs are in you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we are gathered here for a purpose. Primarily, we want to bring glory to you. We recognize that that is your desire, that you glorify yourself. And so, Lord, we want to serve you and your end in that way, to bring glory to you. To do so, Lord, we want to study, to know, to understand your word. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us today as we consider this song. Help us to understand its meaning and significance. And then help us to apply it to our own lives. Lord, I pray that each one of us here would consider very carefully today whether or not we truly belong to you. And that, Lord, you would cause us to know very clearly where we stand with you. And if we, if anyone here this morning doesn't know you, I pray today that they would cry out to you for mercy. Would cry out to you to receive them that they might know you. That their names might be recorded in your record book. Lord, I pray that you would do a work in our hearts. Help us not just to hear your word, but to, to act upon it. And I pray that you would help us to do this that we might glorify you. And I pray that you would help me as I speak to be your instrument so that your word can be clear and the Holy Spirit can move powerfully in our hearts. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, before we go into this psalm at, at any length here, I want to ask you a question. We've read the psalm together Can anyone tell me what Psalm 87 is about? You all have the same look on your face that I did when I started reading this and looking at this psalm and going, okay, what am I going to do with this one? (laughs) Well, we can identify some things, can't we? Let's think about some of the things we can identify that we can all go, okay, there's a few things we can see here, right? This... Psalm is talking about a city, is it not? What city is this psalm talking about? You can answer me. What city? Okay, what city does it, what name does it use here in the psalm? Zion, which we recognize as the city of Jerusalem. Okay, so we, hey, we're, we're on the way here, right? We got on track and we're moving down the track here. We got on the the right direction. We know that this psalm is talking about a city, the city of Zion. We also know some other things, maybe. Okay? You, do you notice that there's some other nations that are mentioned here? <clears throat> Anybody notice some other nations that are mentioned? What are some of the other nations mentioned here in the psalm? Babylon. Tyre. Might be familiar with that. Ethiopia, Philistia, 
You're familiar with the very famous man from Philistia, aren't you? Goliath, the giant of the Philistines, right? He was a man from Philistia. So some of these are familiar. Not really sure what all those nations are about. We'll get to that. It does talk about registering the peoples. If you look there in verse 6, right? God, Yahweh, the Lord, is registering the peoples. Not really quite sure what he's registering them for, but he's registering the peoples, so there's that. Of course, what are, what are we supposed to make of the very abrupt verse 7? Both the singers and players and instruments say, All my springs are in you. you. Look at that and you scratch your head and go, Where were the springs? We missed that somewhere. There's a great deal to puzzle about with respect to this psalm. One of the things that makes it so challenging <clears throat> is that it's so short. It doesn't really give us a lot of information to work with. Not a lot of lengthy explanations here. Not a lot of details to work with. I want to try to answer these questions. We consider this psalm, and, and, and it's an interesting psalm because it's very... Well, it's short, it's dramatic, but it's also very almost erratic. It just kind of throws things out there with, with very abrupt and uh, abruptness and without really a great deal of transition from one thing to the next. It, it's really a challenging psalm to deal with in many ways. Of course, um, there are some options in front of us. If we were inclined to, uh, in fact, if we were so inclined to link this text to our current political and social climate. There's some ways that we could go with this psalm. Um, you know, of course, it, it, you know, one of the hot button issues today, I'm sure that you all are, are, are hearing about it on the news and interacting with some of the ideas about it is immigration. It's a big topic today, right? We could talk about immigration from Psalm 87, right? There's a whole host of nations here in this psalm and they're being, they're being reckoned by Yahweh as citizens of Jerusalem. All these nations. <clears throat> we, could, we could follow the one writer who wrote, looking at verse 4, where it lists all these nations. One writer wrote this. I thought this was interesting. He says, To the consternation of the Israelite immigration officials, the sovereign Lord himself is going to cook the documents. And record these aliens, record that these aliens, let alone non-patrial passport holders, were born there. Declaring that this will actually add to the nation's security, not detract from it. And what aliens they are, mostly enemies and oppressors. Well, I suppose I could preach a message on how we need to adopt God's immigration policy and open our borders if I were so inclined. <laughs> or, you know, another issue that's very, uh, very uh, kind of a big hot-button issue, especially in many so-called evangelical churches today, is the issue of diversity and racism. We could consider this, the fact that this list of nations in verse 4, well, it, it includes representatives from the Middle East, even includes representatives from Africa. But it doesn't include any white Europeans. So I suppose I could preach about the need for greater diversity in the church in light of God's obvious preference here for peoples of color. If, again, if we were so inclined. But you know, neither one of these approaches actually deals with the point of the psalm. Sadly, I encountered them in commentary that I read this week that was intended to give light on the psalm. But they don't actually deal with the point of the psalm. That's always what we're trying to get to. We always want to understand what is the psalmist trying to say to the people he's writing to. The people that were supposed to sing this psalm when it was written. What's the point? Right? That's what we want to know. We want to go back to, as best we can, try to understand what he was getting at. What was he driving at here? And then when we understand that, then we can take that and we can say, okay, what's the application for us? 
But we never want to get the cart before the horse. We don't want to start with the application and work backwards to the text. That's a mistake. So we're not going to do that. Now what we need to do in order for us to understand Psalm 87 is we really need to back up just a little bit and go to Psalm 86 to a couple of verses that we looked at uh, two weeks ago when I preached here last. Look at what he says, Psalm 86 and verses 8 through 10. This, remember, was David's prayer for revival. And this is one of the things that David prayed. Among the gods, there is none like you, O Lord, nor are there any works like your works. All nations whom you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. There in verse 9, David, as he prayed in this prayer, speaks of the nations coming to the Lord and worshiping. That word worship means literally to bow down before him and to glorify his name. What I said at the time about that was this. I said, since the Lord has made the nations, of course they will come and bow before him and worship him and give glory to his name. This is the end to which all history points. God is at work glorifying himself in the world so that ultimately, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is why Jesus came. This is why Jesus died. This is why he rose again. This is why he ascended into heaven. This is why he is coming again. And all his saints with him, that he should command the loyalty and the worship of all peoples. Now, David in Psalm 86 was looking ahead, looking forward in faith, believing the promises of God concerning his kingdom and the king who was going to come from David's own line. God had made promises. He made promises to Abraham and Isaac, Jacob. Had made promises to Moses and the Israelites at Sinai. Made promises to David. And David is, is claiming those promises. He's believing those promises. And he's looking forward and he's saying, I know there's going to come a day, Lord, when all of the nations are going to come and bow down before you and worship you. And David says, that's because you are the only God. The only one worth worshiping. He's praising God. He's adoring God. He is worshiping God himself in anticipation of that glorious day when God causes all of the nations to come before him and worship him. Now, what does that have to do with Psalm 87? Well, Psalm 87 is essentially an expansion on Psalm 86, verse 9. If you take Psalm 86, verse 9, and you unpack it, that's what Psalm 87 is doing. All it is doing is it's expanding on, it's it's going further on that theme the theme of the nations coming and gathering together before the Lord to worship him and glorify his name. David hoped in that. That's what Psalm 87 is really all about. Now, let's try to put this in context here in the Psalter. Because remember, the Psalter, the book of Psalms, was arranged. These Psalms were written over uh, a wide period of time in the history of Israel. And they weren't, you know, originally written as one book. They were just written as songs to be sung. And then they were compiled together. And so they were arranged. And, and we've said there's something, sometimes there's, there's, we can see sometimes why the editor put them where he did. Why he arranged them. Because there's a theme or there's a thread that's common. So you can see why Psalm 87 would follow Psalm 86, right? Because Psalm 86 speaks of the nation's gathering. And Psalm 87 is going to explain a little bit more about that. But in the context here of the Psalter, we are now approaching the end of book three. Book three ends at Psalm 89, so we're getting very close here. 
And as we, as we approach the end of book three, it has become very, very clear that David's line is failing. In fact, it's become clear that David's line has failed. Back at the beginning of book two, Psalm 42, 43, and on the those psalms, there was a great deal of joy and hope and expectation of a bright future for David's line. A bright future for Israel. God was doing a work. David had come to the throne and things were looking up. All of these promises to be fulfilled. Well, over time, we see that David is not perfect. David's sons were even less faithful than he was, right? Solomon, and then it goes downhill pretty quickly from there. And most of David's sons and descendants, as we go down through the generations, when we see sin and corruption and wickedness and immorality and idolatry, and these are the things we see that generation after generation, and and every once in a while there's a a godly king or two that rises up, but for the most part we see a downward trend. And of course, we know how that ends. <clears throat> that ends with the 12 tribes being taken into captivity. First, the northern tribes taken to Assyria, and then the southern tribes taken to Babylon. Babylon is conquered by Persia, and the people are essentially scattered throughout the Persian Empire. Now, some of the people have returned. We've talked about this recently because some of these psalms <clears throat> that we touched on here in the mid-80s, here in, this, in book three, are dealing with the, the people who've returned and the need for revival because they've returned and they've begun rebuilding the, the, the temple. <clears throat> so the city itself lies in ruins and the remnant that is there has, has no real hope of restoring the city of Jerusalem to its former greatness. And they certainly have no hope of fulfilling the glorious promises that were made in the scriptures and they begin to look around and see, and there's, there's nothing but desolation around them. And even if they could rebuild the city, they don't have the strength to protect it. They don't even have autonomy. They're under the thumb of the Persian powers. They have no hope of independence. And this is the context in which the, the psalmist, or the, the, salt, the psalter's editor, places David's prayer for revival in Psalm 86 that we looked at. And he followed it up with this song concerning Zion in Psalm 87. Is the the editor here of the Psalter, is he just mocking their weak attempts to rebuild the temple and restore the glory of Jerusalem? Not at all. In fact, this psalm communicates a very important message. The message is this, and we need to get this. However things might appear at this moment... What matters is what God has said, not what our eyes can see. All right, let me say that again. However, however things might appear at this moment, what matters is what God has said, not what our eyes can see. I hope that that message, that theme comes out here as we consider this psalm, because I think that's really what's undergirding Psalm 87, and I want you to see that today. I want you to consider in Psalm 87 what God has said and then choose to believe it and rejoice in it rather than to dwell on only what we can see with our eyes today. First of all, look at what he says concerning Jerusalem in these first three verses. This is the city of God. His foundation is in the holy mountains. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwellings of Jacob. Glorious things are spoken of you, O city of God. The psalm begins very abruptly here with his foundation. Whose foundation? A foundation for what? Well, verse 1 doesn't tell us. It just jumps in. His foundation is in the holy mountains. We don't know whose or what it's for. The next verse, verse 2, suggests that it's Yahweh's foundation and also that the foundation is of the city of Zion. The Lord 
has laid the foundation of the city of Jerusalem. Now, if we know anything about history, we might look at this verse and think, that's laughable. It's laughable to think that God founded the city of Zion. We know who founded the city of Zion. The city of Jerusalem has existed. I mean, when this psalm is written, the city has existed for centuries. Think about Abraham. Abraham meeting the king of Salem. That's Jerusalem. Melchizedek. Think about David comes along and there's a city already established there. It's called Jebus. David has to conquer the city of Jebus. David conquered it. He expanded it. Solomon expanded it. The other kings. Now the city of Jerusalem at the time this psalm is written is in in ruins. How can it be said that Yahweh founded this city? Well, this is another theme that's continued from Psalm 86 that we touched on there. And that is that God is sovereign over history. That whatever human hands may have taken part in building this city, it was really built according to the divine will. Because nothing happens apart from the divine will of God. And so a historian might scoff at this statement. But we know, when the psalmist says that... This is his foundation, that he laid this foundation in his holy mountains. We know that even if it was unbelieving hands that actually laid the stones, it was God's will that caused it to be done. Why? Because God is the one who's sovereign over history. God is the one who rules over these things. He laid its foundation. Where did he lay its foundation? He says in his holy mountains. What makes the mountains holy? Because God has chosen them. Remember, He chose this place as the place on earth where His glory was going to dwell. Remember that. He made that choice. That's what this is emphasizing to us. The psalmist is trying to emphasize this very important point. That God chose this place, the city of Zion, to be His dwelling place. This is Zion. This is His city. It's made holy by the presence of Yahweh. Now it's interesting here in verse 2, he says that he, Yahweh, loves her gates more than any other city in all of Israel. But let's, let's, again, let's come back to this. Let's use our imagination here. Let's picture what this city looked like when this was written. It wasn't the great city of David, protected by a great wall and heavy gates. It wasn't the home of Solomon. We read about the time of Solomon when he was king that in Jerusalem silver was so plentiful that it was essentially worthless and they used it for gravel. Because there was so much gold and silver that silver became worthless as any sort of monetary exchange. And it was considered like gravel. That's not the kind of city that we're talking about right here. Instead, it was a burn and ruined wasteland. The walls had been torn down. The temple had been destroyed. Everything had been burned with fire. And yet the psalmist says, Yahweh loves the gates of Zion. How could that be? I mean, all of the evidence of our eyes tells us that the Lord is angry with Jerusalem. You don't ruin something you love. We're tempted to judge the same way today. It's easy to question whether God loves you when your life is a mess, when there's pain and there's, there's anger and there's suffering and conflict. And if God loved Zion, wouldn't He protect her? Wouldn't He glorify her? If God really loved you and me, wouldn't He protect us from the pain and the sorrow of life? That's the way we're tempted to think. That's why verse 3 is so important. Because we can't base everything on what we see. 
We can't make judgments about God's love towards Zion based on what it looks like in its present circumstances. Instead, we need to listen to what God says. And the psalmist speaks there in verse 3, as if speaking to the city itself, glorious things are spoken of you, O city of God. What kind of things? Glorious things. Weighty things. Majestic things. God's word toward Jerusalem is not death and destruction. It's not weakness and humiliation. It's glory and it's hope. But here's where the people who have first heard the psalm had to respond in faith. Because imagine this. Every morning they woke up. They got out of bed to brew that first cup of coffee. They probably weren't drinking coffee. I don't think it had been invented yet or discovered yet. Too bad for them. But they look out their window. They see the ruins of the once great city of Jerusalem. We read in the book of Nehemiah that Jerusalem was such a desolate place that none of the people wanted to live there. In fact, they had to have a lottery. And they had to compel the lottery winners to move into Jerusalem. <laughs> wasn't much of a lottery win. They were forced to move into Jerusalem because none of them wanted to live there. They couldn't have the city lay empty while they were trying to rebuild it. They needed people to live there to take care of it. But that's how bad it was. Nobody wanted to live there. So imagine this. These people, they get up, they wake up every morning, and they look out their window, and what do they see? They see desolation. They see rubble. They see reminders of the judgment of God and the cruelty of the Babylonians. That's what they see every morning with their eyes. But God says something different about that city. God says glorious things. And he has to be speaking about the future. Because he's sure not speaking about the glory of a bunch of broken down ruins. Here's the thing about God that makes it reasonable for us to believe that this city will again be glorious if we were living there at this time. God is faithful to keep his word. That's the thing that the psalmist he, he doesn't really specifically talk about the faithfulness of God. He just assumes it. As I said, this psalm is very abrupt. There's not a lot of transition. He just assumes that we all know that God is faithful to keep His word. Glorious things are spoken of you, he says. But you know, he's got pretty good reason to believe that God is faithful. Right? I mean, here we have Psalm of the Sons of Korah. These are Levites, the tribe of Levi, the children of Israel. The very fact that they exist is proof that God is faithful to keep his word. Let me explain what I mean by that. Remember Abraham? I mean, you don't remember Abraham, but you remember reading about Abraham? Right, Abraham, when he was 75 years of age, he had no children. The reason he had no children is because his wife, Sarah, who was 60 years of age, had never been able to conceive. God promised them a son. More than that, Yahweh promised them descendants more numerous than the stars in the sky or the sand in the seashore. How ridiculous then. 24 years later, at ages 99 and 84. How ridiculous to believe God when he said they would have a son by the very next year. And yet Paul tells us in Romans 4. This is, this is always, every time I read this, this absolutely blows my mind. Paul tells us this in Romans 4. That Abraham, contrary to hope, in hope believed. You got to catch that. It was contrary to hope. There was no earthly reason to believe. It seemed like insanity. And yet, Abraham believed. Paul says, Abraham believed in the God who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. 
Paul says, that's the God that Abraham believed in. 24 years after the initial promise, 24 years after the initial promise, when Abraham is 99 and Sarah is 84. Still no children. And God says, next year at this time, you're going to have a son. Would you believe? (laughs) I mean, come on. That's ridiculous. That's insane. Nobody, nobody gets pregnant at 85 years of old and has a baby. Especially who's been 85 years, never been able to get pregnant. Nobody does that. That's ridiculous. God promised it. Abraham believed. And what Paul says is this. This is what he says, very next thing. Abraham became the father of many nations. Abraham believed what God said. And it came to pass. And these Israelites who wrote this psalm, guess what? They're proof. They wouldn't exist if God hadn't done what he said he was going to do with Abraham. God is faithful to keep his word. Why would the psalmist then write these words about Zion? Glorious things are spoken of you. A city laying in ruins. Why? Because God is the God who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. That's the God we're talking about. Now here's the thing. It would be absolutely mind-blowing for God to restore Jerusalem to her former glory and fulfill all of His promises to Jerusalem. Especially if we put ourselves in this situation and we look out at this city that is in ruins and completely torn to the ground and burned. That would be awesome and amazing. But this psalm tells us there's something even greater that God has in mind. That's what I love about this. This is where you and I come in, by the way. There's something even greater. Because it's not just the city of God. It's the people of God. Look at verse 4. I will make mention of Rahab and Babylon to those who know me. Behold, O Philistia and Tyre with Ethiopia, this one was born there. And of Zion it will be said, this one and that one were born in her. And the Most High Himself shall establish her. The Lord will record when He registers the people, this one was born there. Notice, first of all, that he's listing several different nations here in verse 4. The one that may be unfamiliar to you, Rahab. You you may think, well, that's the name of a person, right? Sure, Joshua. We know about Rahab, the lady. Lady might be a generous term, but the, the woman that lived in Jericho that hid the two spies and became a believer and became a part of the people of God. But that's not the word that's used here. This word Rahab is a word that is used by the prophet Isaiah to refer to Egypt. It's kind of an insulting term, actually, because it refers to their big mouth and their boasting. It also kind of describes them as a monster. So it it kind of has this picture of a monster with a huge mouth. But it's, in one sense, it could be a terrifying thing if Egypt is really this great monster, this vicious nation. And they certainly thought they were. But remember what God does to Egypt or did to Egypt, right? So it, it kind of works both ways as an insult, but also describing them at any point at any rate here this is referring to egypt egypt of course was the ancient enslaver of the jewish people we see egypt or rahab there and then who else babylon well egypt is the ancient enslaver babylon is the present one the current one they're the most recent one that came in and conquered they're the ones that destroyed the city and so the mention of these two nations is is kind of you know these are the the enemies the unconquerable enemies the great and fearsome nations that Israel could never defeat. Couldn't hope to stand up to. These nations were huge. They were, they, were, they were military powers. They were world powers. Then he mentions the Philistines. Remember Philistines? They were Israel's next door neighbor. They were constant enemies. Mentioned Goliath. But the Philistines were always enemies Over the years, it was constant back and forth. Sometimes the Philistines would be stronger and Israel would be uh, subjugated. And other times Israel would be stronger and Philistines would be subjugated. But it was always back and forth. They were constantly at each other. There's that next door neighbor that's just a constant irritation and threat. Then it mentions Tyre to the north. Tyre was an ally in many ways, a trading partner. 
but you know, not next door, but just off to the north. And then it mentions Ethiopia. Ethiopia is a description of the area south of Egypt in the African continent. And it's kind of, you got you to gotta think about this in their terms. Again, they don't have, you know, intercontinental travel and things like that. And, and so Ethiopia was like the farthest off land. It was like the distant part of the globe in their thinking. So what he's describing here is nations that are unconquerable enemies, nations that are the, 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 the enemy near and the allies, and the, even the nations that are as far away, the, the furthest corners of the globe. He's really intending to cover the whole spectrum of peoples on the earth. Notice what the Lord says about these nations. Verse 4, he says, He will mention Egypt and Babylon among those who know him. This is a case of God calling things which do not exist as though they did. These nations do not know God. Egypt. Babylon. These are pagan, corrupt, wicked nations. They don't know God. And yet he says, I'm going to mention them as those who know me. This is God calling things that are not as though they were. By the way, it's no different today. Nations of the world do not know God. People like to call America a Christian nation. And yet we have legally murdered 60 million babies in the mother's wombs. We have defied God's clear mandate concerning marriage and legalized so-called gay marriage. If we're a Christian nation, then what does that say about what it means to be Christian? Well, the fact is that the nations today don't know God any more than the ancient peoples did. But you know what? We have the promise of Yahweh here in this verse that the nations will know him. These are some of the glorious things that he's speaking. The nations will know him. And what's more, even more astounding, the end of verse 4 is what he's going to say about these nations. This one was born there. Born where? Well, what city is he talking about? Zion. Jerusalem. He makes that very clear there in verse 5. Of Zion it will be said, this one and that one were born in her. He even takes it one step further at the end of verse 5 and says that Zion will be established. Rather than ruined, Zion will be established by the entering in of all of these nations. See, normally these nations coming into Zion is a bad thing. That means an invasion. God says, they're going to come in and be registered as citizens. And that's a good thing. Talk about open borders. (laughs) God's going to welcome all nations into Jerusalem and give them the rights of citizenship in his holy city. How is this even possible? Well, how is it possible for a Jew returning from captivity into the ruins of Jerusalem to believe that the city would be restored and filled again with the glory of God? Why? Well, because God gives life to the dead. And he calls those things which do not exist as though they did. It's God's word which will bring to pass all of these astounding and wondrous works. You've got to notice here what he says in verse 6. He says it here. The decree of the Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, will record when he registers the people. You see that? God is going to register the people in his book. He's going to write their names down. He's going to record them. I mean, you know that God keeps records, right? The Bible tells us that God has books. Maybe the one that is the most well-known or most important to us is the book of life that records the name of every person who has believed on Jesus Christ and been given eternal life. 
Well, here we have the mention of a book, a register. God is going to register the people. He's going to write their names down in a book. And this book appears to be a register of all of the native-born people of Jerusalem. All of the people who have native citizenship in the holy city of God. They have full rights to come and go. They have full rights to dwell there. And what does this psalm tell us? It says that God is going to record the nations from all across the globe that they were born there. Now maybe you're still wondering, what is the significance of that? What difference does this make and what's the point? Well, obviously, this can't be a register of physical birth. I mean, Egyptians are born in Egypt. See, Babylonians are born in Babylon and all the rest. So it's not talking about physical birth here. Because the nations will come and they will come and be recorded as having been born there. Not physically. No, he's talking not physically, but he's talking about spiritual birth. It's exactly what John was talking about in John 1 verse 12 when he said, but as many as received him, that's Jesus Christ, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Even to those who believe in his name. How can these nations, how can these pagan peoples come to know God and be registered among his children as citizens in his holy city? Well, the power to do that can only come from God himself. John 1 tells us that this is why Jesus came. To give this power to everyone who believes in his name. This is the significance of Jesus' life, of his death, of his burial, his resurrection that men and women and children could become God's children by believing in Jesus' name. So I want you to think this morning and ask yourself, have you become a child of God? There's only one way to become a child of God. You can't become His child by going to church. You can't become a child of God by listening to preaching or being baptized. You can't become a child of God uh, by giving money or by trying to be a good person. You can't become a child of God even by confessing your sins. You become a child of God by believing in Jesus Christ who died for you. To bear the punishment of your sin. This is the promise. Remember I said we have to believe what God says. This is what God says. This is His promise. And it's a promise from the one who gives life to the dead and who calls things which do not exist as though they did. He says, if you believe on Jesus, you have the right to become a child of God. That's what He says. Psalm 87 says, God, Yahweh, will register these peoples. These peoples from all of the nations all across the globe. He will register these peoples and he will say, born in Zion. Full citizen. A member of the family. All the rights. Everything that pertains to it. The same power. The same power that that, that John says God uses to transform you and me from sinners into saints, is the same power that Psalm 87 says is one day going to transform the nations that all nations would know God and come to Jerusalem to worship Him and glorify His name in fulfillment of what Psalm 86 verse 9 said. When David said that the nations are going to come and bow before you and glorify your name. Now, when we understand the first six verses of this psalm, We understand it's a promise of the city of God filled with the people of God who are believers from all nations. Then we can now make sense of the final verse, the one that really sticks out and doesn't seem to fit in anywhere. 
Look at verse 7 again. Both the singers and the players on instruments say, all my springs are in you. Now I want you to picture something with me for a moment. Picture in your mind the rejoicing that must have taken place on Ellis Island, New York, where hundreds of thousands of immigrants found refuge in the United States. The rejoicing when their ships landed and they were cleared and they were allowed to enter into America. Think about the the singing and the dancing and the, the excitement and the rejoicing that must have taken place for so many families and so many people who came here hoping to escape the the tyranny or the poverty or the distress from which they'd come and hoping for a better life. You, you picture that with me? People excited, rejoicing. How much greater would their rejoicing be if their ship had landed and they were told as they got off the ship, listen, your name has been recorded as a native-born citizen of the United States. What a privilege. That's what this psalm is talking about. People from all nations coming to the city of God and finding themselves recorded as natural-born citizens. This is exactly what John says happens when a person puts their trust in Jesus and is given the right to become a child of God. So what's an appropriate response? How should we respond? How should we respond when we realize that because we believed on Jesus, God says, I wrote your name down here, born in Zion. All the rights, everything that goes along with being a citizen, that's what I wrote down. Well, I, I know, I know you were, you're born in sin. I know you were, you know, Psalm 51, you know, in sin, my mother conceived me. I know you were conceived in sin. I know, but you know what I wrote down on your record here is you were born in Zion. You're a child of my city. What's an appropriate response? Well, that's verse 7. The singers, the instrumentalists, everybody joins in unison. And what do they say? What do they sing? All my springs are in you. This is the joy of God. The joy of God. Why? Because what are they saying? They're saying, everything good comes from you. The focus here is on Zion. The focus here is really looking forward (coughs) to the kingdom. That day when all the nations are going to come and gather in Jerusalem, and they're going to praise and worship God, and they're going to say, this is where all of our joy is found, right here. Of course, we know that the, the Scriptures teach us that in Zion, in Jerusalem on that day, it's going to be the Lord Jesus Christ seated on that throne. That's why they're going to say, our joy is in you, all of our springs, everything good comes from you. Well, Christian, believer, shouldn't you say the same thing today? Shouldn't our mind think that way today? See, this is is the radical change. As sinners, we're like Adam and Eve in the garden. God says, I've given you this gift. And our immediate thought is, I wonder if that's really good. Or if he's just trying to keep us from reaching our true potential. I wonder if there's something better out there for me. But see, as a son and daughter of God, as a child of God whose name has been recorded, as a natural born citizen, our thinking changes now. We recognize that God's gifts are always good. That God gives what is good. And so we rejoice and we say, all my springs, all of the good things, all of the bounty. I mean, think about a spring. The idea of a spring is water that comes up from the ground. You don't even have to dig for it. It's just a blessing that just springs up. And they say, Where is it found? In you. In you. Christian, are you rejoicing in the Lord this morning? That's the right response. 
That's the only response that makes any sense if you've realized that your name has been written down and you have been recorded as a citizen of God's holy city. You have believed in the one who gives life to the dead. And he gave life to you. You've trusted in the one who calls things which do not exist as though they did. And he's called you a child of God and a citizen of his holy city. Will you join with his people and sing his praise? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, what a privilege it is to read in the scriptures that this this teaching, this idea of, of, of that we can become children of God by faith in Jesus Christ is not something that's new that just came about in the New Testament. But it's something you had in mind all along. You, you were speaking of the nations and the fact that, that, that you were going to save men and women out of the nations. And ultimately we believe that you are going to save all of the nations. And we know there will be people who are not believers who will be condemned. We pray that they would trust in you. But we know there will come a day when you will come to this earth and establish your kingdom and everyone will worship you. And Lord, we long for that day. But until that day comes, Lord, we sing and rejoice. Those of us who know you, those of us who've had our sins forgiven and been given eternal life by faith in Jesus Christ, Lord, we sing, we rejoice. Lord, help us to find all of our springs in you, all of the good. Help us to to love you and to rejoice in all of the good gifts that you give us. Lord, help us not to get carried away by all of the desires of life in this world, all of the other things that we could chase after, but instead, Lord, help us to rejoice in you and in you alone. Prepare us for that day when we'll be in this city of Zion with all your people bowing down to worship you and glorifying your name. Lord, I pray that anyone who is here today who has not known you, who's never had their sins forgiven, who's still lost, still wallowing around in their own self-righteousness and their own uh, self-reliance, that they would realize how foolish that is. Realize that you have promised. You give the rights of full citizenship Natural born, you'll write it down on your record. Lord, you do that to all those who come to you. I pray that you'd help us to come to you today in faith, believing that we'd receive eternal life and be called the children of God by believing in the name of Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.